Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, visit BetterHelp.com stuff today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash stuff. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, there's Jerry over there, and we are wasted. <laughs> wasted on excitement about talking about gin. <laughs> Wasted on excitement. Uh huh. I like that. That's a great it. motto. Yeah. And not a not the worst band name, but not the best. It's not the best at all. It's no. like an album title, more like. Oh yeah, it's a good album title. Maybe it's um, Jungle X Ray's second album, "Wasted on Excitement." Yeah, or Bathtub Gin, "Wasted on Excitement." Bathtub Gin's a fish song. Oh, it is. Mm-hmm. Ugh. <laughs> it's funny. I was. I was walking in the neighborhood yesterday, and I saw a, uh, a a car that was clearly like the child home for for Thanksgiving. It was like this uh-huh. kind of beat up Jeep from Florida, and it had a fish sticker and a Grateful Dead sticker and like one other thing. <laughs> College <laughs> and this really nice thing, and I was like, "Oh man, I bet." Uh, I wonder how much weed is hidden in that thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Welcome home, son. What's that smell? <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, were you being the son? Were we act, play acting? No, it just, it was that that sip of coffee I just took went down the wrong wrong pipe. The wrong pipe. Man, what is up with those faulty flaps? I don't know, man. Probably too that. much gin. I love gin, and I love reading about it and researching it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I might have a martini tonight as a result. I don't think there's any way you could not have a martini after reading about gin for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, because gin and tonic season is over for me, sadly. Oh, yeah? And I'm into wine season, but wine season and martini season, there's some comorbidity there. Martini season's year-round. Eh, not for me. I mean, I don't drink that many martinis. It's a mood thing. Or if I'm with Hodgman, we pound them. Sure. You can't not drink martinis when Hodgman's around. Yeah. Of course, yeah. No comment. Okay. <laughs> But correct. So we're talking gin because gin is great. Mm-hmm. We love gin. Um, and it turns out gin's got a pretty pretty interesting history to it. I think so too. And we did an episode not too long ago on a short stuff actually mm-hmm. on the difference between bourbon and whiskey, right? Has that been out yet even with the way our schedule works? I don't even oh, know. Oh, wait. It's coming out tomorrow now oh, that okay. I think about it. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow is in today or tomorrow is in after this is released? 
tomorrow is in uh, the people who are listening to this <laughs> okay. the day it comes out uh-huh. tomorrow to them that okay, very gotcha. select group of humans as far as the dimension of time goes that's right so um tomorrow everybody you'll hear short stuff about the difference between whiskey and bourbon and one of the things that really stands out is there are a lot of laws surrounding whiskey especially in the United States. Uh-huh. What makes whiskey whiskey? What you can call a specific kind of whiskey? What you can put on the label of some kinds of whiskey? Lots and lots of um, laws exist. The law of the country? Don't forget that one. The spirit of America. Mm-hmm. The native spirit of America. That's what it was. Okay. But with gin, it's quite the opposite. Basically, as long as you have a neutral grain spirit that is distilled at, I think... 80 proof or higher, you can add whatever flavor you want to it and that you can call it gin. Okay. Which is not whatever you're, if you buy that thing uh, that I just described, although it's technically legally gin, it's not really gin. A lot of people call it flavored vodkas. But for gin, there are specific steps you want to follow. There are specific things you want to do. And more than anything... There's probably going to be a taste of juniper to it. Yeah, that is that used to be very much the case. Uh, now, and we've talked a little bit about this on other episodes, just uh, tangentially, I think, mm-hmm. is that there are many artisan gin makers now that are doing all kinds of crazy gins, yeah. and some, many, eschewing the juniper altogether. That beautiful little evergreen shrub yeah. and those little cones that have that piney, uh, citrusy, peppery taste yep. that we love so much. Yep. Uh, by the way, I should say, our, our buddy Ben Harrison yeah. of The Greatest Generation and Friendly Fire, he, I, I've seen this online elsewhere, but as far as he knows, he invented it. <laughs> a smoked gin and tonic where he gets a little, uh, like a chef's torch okay, and smokes juniper berries oh. and then throws the glass on top of it upside down. Mm-hmm. And lets it just smoke up, and then turns it over and adds the ice and the uh, and the, wow. the rest of the mixins there. I would like to try that. I've had like smoked Manhattans and smoked whiskey drinks. Oh like yeah, wood smoked kind. And, and did good. they do the same thing? Uh, yes, yeah, same same process. But I've never ever heard of a smoked gin and tonic. So hats off to Ben if he did invent that. Yeah, it was good. Uh, and I also want to and I know I shouted it out before, but uh, I, I get this local tonic now that's delicious. That is the real deal, you know, the uh, chinchona bark. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very different than if you're used to traditional, like, Schweppes tonic. doesn't taste anything like that. No. it's uh, You cut it with uh, soda water, and it's a very, very lovely taste. Oh, yeah. Like, good tonic water is just amazingly good. Yeah, it's... and that's, you know, if you're talking about, like, Fever Tree, mm-hmm. we'll buzz market. Sure. Um, that is still a little more of a traditional tonic. This stuff is brown, right, uh, and syrupy, and then you 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 mix it with the soda, and it it becomes sort of a real version of that stuff. So it's probably very similar to stuff they were drinking in India in the 19th century. I think so. So we'll we'll get all we'll get to all that. Let's go back to gin. All right. So you start off if you want to make gin. And I have a gin-making kit from last Christmas I still haven't used, and I'm, this has inspired me to go home today and actually make my own gin. And then pound it. <laughs> I'll bring some in. We can all take a sip. All right. Uh, just a sip. But you start with that base spirit 
um, ethyl, ethyl alcohol that's 96% ABV. That you can power a car on. <laughs> yeah. And then you redistill gin, and that is one of the keys here, a, a real real gin. You redistill that spirit with whatever botanicals you end up choosing. Right, but typically the main botanical that's used in the main flavor profile of gin, aside from alcohol that you can power your car on, is that juniper berry that that Traditionally, tastes of juniper. That correct. Kind of piney, evergreeny. Mm-hmm. Um, some people call it like drinking a Christmas tree. Mm. What makes gin gin? It, gin? Once you've had a sip of gin, you will never mistake it for anything else for the rest of your life. That's right, and that base spirit can be. Um, also, wait, uh, and you should also wait until you're 21 to have that. Sure, first sip of, gin. <laughs> of course. Uh, that base spirit can be wheat, it can be rye, it can be corn, it can be barley, but uh, it can be really anything. Uh, there, you can make potato uh, gin or apple gin. Uh, I saw this company in Ireland. There was an article in Vice mm-hmm. uh, by Elizabeth Roosh. Um, Ireland's best gin is made out of milk. Yeah, I saw that too. Bertha's gin. They make it, uh, and this is produced fully in Ireland, which is a great thing because it's a byproduct of cheese making. That way, um, sweet way, mm-hmm. they uh, they they use that to make gin. It's crazy. Yeah, they ferment the whey and then use that. They distill that fermented beer, basically, mm-hmm. and then you distill that further in the process of bit, or the um, presence of botanicals, and then you have gin. It's just this multi-step process. But because you're st- you're starting out with such a ridiculously high proof um, alcohol, like neutral alcohol, you can use basically an old shoe to make that that neutral grain spirit, and it's going to taste virtually the same as neutral grain spirit made from, or neutral spirit made from barley or from whey or from potatoes or grapes. It just is the the alcoholic essence of those things. Yeah, and apparently that fermented whey is uh, what makes Bailey's as well, which but I didn't know. Bailey's yeah. uh, Irish whiskey? Yeah, fermented whey. Oh, that's way. cool. I did not know that either. Uh, and this, I got to try this stuff though. It's called Bertha's Revenge. Or Bailey's Irish cream, I'm sorry. Yeah, would you say Irish whiskey? Yeah, no, no, it's the it's the coffee additive. That's the Conor McGregor stuff for Grandma. Um, Bertha's Revenge looks delicious, and it is <laughs> uh, fully made in Ireland. And Bertha apparently is a, is a cow mm-hmm, that they have named heard about it after. Her. Yeah, she she died at like age forty nine after giving birth to thirty something calves over her lifespan. Yeah. yeah, she was a very prolific milk cow <laughs> in many ways. Yeah, but they, um, they're they not the only game in town making uh, whey-based gin. There are no, others no. as well. But sure. supposedly, again, it's it's they say that there's something in the way that even once it's distilled into its spirit, um, there's it's some there's some mouthfeel to it or some flavor profile. But a lot of people argue that that's just not the case, that no matter what you make it from, you're going to arrive at basically the same base neutral spirit. Okay. Mm, okay. We'll find out. I'll just let me have some. I'll try it. <laughs> uh, Bombay Sapphire, which we'll learn later on, um, perhaps kickstarted the resurgence of gin. Yeah, did you know that in the United States? No, but uh, it makes a little bit of sense mm-hmm. now that I see the dates and the yeah. timelines of when it came over. But sure. uh, they very proudly display their ten different botanicals uh, on the bottle: licorice, juniper, of course, uh, cubeb berries, mm-hmm. uh, angelica root, almonds, coriander. Cassia bark, iris root, lemon peel, and grains of paradise. Very nice. And I like a Bombay Sapphire Martini. That's uh, 
That's a good fallback for me, although I'm a Plymouth man through and through when it comes to uh, martinis. Yeah. And I like, uh, generally I like the Hendrix, uh, and I like Tanqueray, good old-fashioned Tanqueray for the tonics. I'll get a Hendrix martini when I'm out and about, mm-hmm. but if it, if I'm, like, making it myself, I used to like the more boring, straightforward London dry gins, right? Yeah, the the traditional jam. ones for the martini. And then I realized, like, no, man, you want to go the exact opposite of that. You want, like, the most botanical gin you can find for a gin martini because, I mean, it's basically gin with a little bit of vermouth, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to taste your gin. So I've kind of gravitated toward stuff like um, the Botanist mm. um, or St. George's Botanivore. Those are two really, really, like... I guess botanicals, the best way to put it, gins that are out there that are really, really tasty. Is that the St. George that tastes like feet? Yeah, so, no, <laughs> that is their aged, uh, like, reposado gin. Yeah, that, that I didn't love that. Where they made it like, it was a, like kind of a mezcal or, or, or aged tequila style gin, where it was gin, but it had like some quality of like really l- like long aged tequila. I think you weren't, prepared for it. <laughs> I wonder if you'd like it now knowing like what it was going into it. Maybe. I mean, I'm always hip to try something, but I'd love a good high quality London dry gin. That's my jam. Sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you. I just like the more botanical ones these days than I used to. The botanical? <laughs> the puritanical ones, the ones that don't have any alcohol at all. So I think we should quickly talk about, before we take our first break, about um, just how you distill it, because there's a couple of ways. Um and then we'll take our break. But the first way is steeping, and that is, you know, you steep tea, and it's the same thing, basically. You have your base spirit heating up, and it simmers, and then you have those botanicals right in there, and the oils are releasing, mm-hmm. and it's just infusing through the whole thing. Exactly. Uh, the other way, and, you know, Emily has a still now. I'd love to maybe get in there and try some of this for real. I did not know that. Does she, like, carry a Tommy gun around and wear a floor-length fur coat? <laughs> No, she's got a copper still. She's uh, She goes to Athens, Georgia once a week to harvest herbs and then distills herbs for oh, uh, that's her products. Right. Yeah. I did know that. Yeah, it's very cool. That is super cool. It's a lot of fun to see her out there doing that stuff. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, and then the other way is vapor infusion, and that is what Bombay Sapphire does, and that is when you have the botanicals in a basket hanging above the boiling spirit, and the, that vapor rises and it does it more through like that steam, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. So, or you can combine the two, which is what another kind of St. George gin uh, terroir um, does, where they use the steeping method for most of the botanicals. And then they use the vapor method for, I think, like Douglas fir and bay laurel leaves. Mm. So, it's it's got like kind of the tea of botanicals brewing and then it's just vaporizing through those other, those last two. So cool. It is pretty cool, actually. All right. Now we'll take a break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit about uh, the types of gin, uh, which also entails some history right after this. (laughs) 
Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Hey, everybody. If you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. Start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A dot com. Okay, we've taken our break. We had our little half sandwiches. <laughs> we're ready to talk about you. I can't more. believe you still cut the crust off. That's very interesting for a grown well, man. Well, I just think it's a little, it always has like a, just a crusty <laughs> taste to it that I'm not fond of. I have always maintained if they didn't call it crust, kids might eat it. Uh, do you think? Yeah, I think if you said, you know, the, do you want the magic ring left on your bread? I think kids would probably have a whole different view. But if you say, do you want the crust? I disagree. I think that magic ring would be a, a gross term now. <laughs> be like, yeah. Look at that magic ringy old guy. He keeps staring <laughs> at us. We'll just insert Josh Clark's magic word of choice. <laughs> magic Not, ringy. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even have to use the word magic, but what would you call crust that sounds better to a kid? I'm saying no matter what you called it, I think it would become synonymous with something gross. I know, but I'm asking you to yes and Fine. this. Fine, let's see. Uh, <laughs> yes and is not my strong suit. I failed out of improv. Yours is more no but. <laughs> right, no. There's no but. It's no, Just here's why you're stop. wrong. Uh, the, um, the rainbow ring. Okay, great. The rainbow circle. I love it. I don't like it. I'll go back and edit this part out. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Jen. Um, we already talked about the fact that it has to be, if you ask me, really distilled with these botanicals to be real gin. Right. Otherwise, flavored vodka, that name is uh, can come up, and that's a dirty word. Yes. But yes. distilled London dry gin, uh, some of the big big cats, Beefeater and Gordon's and Tanqueray, uh, or some of those those Big Daddy London dries. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm a Plymouth guy. I like but, Plymouth too. Yeah, mm-hmm. but these are not sweet. That's why they're called dry gins. Right, sweet gins are um, have a long history, and they actually predate gin 
for uh, for by many many years. But the London Dry Gin is what most people think of when they when they think of gin, and a London Dry Gin is actually a subcategory of a larger category, which is distilled gin. You got gin, which is basically flavored vodkas, which you could literally put any flavor into this neutral spirit mm-hmm. and call it gin. Distilled gin means it went through that process like we described before the break. And London Dry is one of those. That's right. Right? Uh-huh. Is that basically what you just said? Yeah. I mean, I was listening and following it, but it just seemed off. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up. I'm sorry about that. That's all right. Uh, then we get to Old Tom Gin, and this has an interesting history of its etymology. Um, and I got this from uh, Mark uh, Vierthaler at talesofthecocktail.com. Mm. Apparently, the name Old Tom comes from uh, these plaques that uh, hung outside of pubs that look like there they're, was like the shape of an old tomcat's head. Mm-hmm. And get this, and this is amazing. Apparently, uh, in London, if you had this sign hanging up in the window, mm-hmm. underneath the cat's paw was a slot and a lead pipe attached to a funnel, and you could go down the street in England and drop a coin in the slot and get a shot of gin in your mouth. Yeah, from under the cat's paw. Amazing. I saw that, too. I saw that it originated, Chuck, with this guy named Captain Dudley Bradstreet. And the whole reason he started doing this was because there was a law that said that the informant had to know the name of the person who was selling the illegal gin for the cops to have probable cause to raid a place. Oh, interesting. So he holed himself up in this house on this one alley, Blue Anchor Alley, and started selling gin that way, anonymously. And because no one knew who was selling it, the cops could never raid the place. Wow. But yeah, it was under a, the paw of an old, like a, a, a like a statue or sign or something of an old paw or an old tomcat. I love it. I uh, do too, man. Old Tom went away. It was very much sweeter. That was when they were using sugar and a lot of botanicals because uh, the the base spirit wasn't that great taste wise. Mm-hmm. So they loaded it up with sugar and this other stuff. And prohibition basically killed Old Tom Gin for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time. Um, people started, you know, prohibition was over. They didn't really have a taste for it anymore. And it is, it has made a comeback in recent years, though, a bit of a comeback. You, uh, if you are interested in trying, you should start with Ransom's Old Tom Gin. Yeah. It's just beautiful stuff. Is it good? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about Navy Strength Gin? <laughs> I love that stuff. Have you ever had that? No, nah, I don't know if I have or not, actually. It will make you blind. Oh, really? Like, your hangover is noticeably worse the next day for the same amount of booze it's just what's a brand stronger stuff i think anchor Hmm. i believe anchor makes a navy strength gin that would make sense um i'm almost positive that's who's i've had but it's it's just like this higher proof i think like gin can be as low as like 37 and a half percent and navy strength is at least 50 50 percent okay and there's just a noticeable difference in it. And the taste is, it's you know, it's not terribly much different. It's just the potency of it. But it's gotcha. it, it got its name from a pretty great little legend, from what I understand. Yeah, that's um, in the Navy. They, they loved them some gin in the Navy, and they actually got gin rations. And so sailors would test it out uh, to see if it was, you know, up to snuff or <laughs> if it was watered down. And they would drizzle it over a little pinch of gunpowder and then light it. And if it lit, then it was Navy strength. Yeah. I love it. And I, I, it's not like a legal classification or anything, is it? It's just kind of like a, 
Well, it says it says Navy Strength Gen is at least fifty seven point one percent. So huh. that leads. I don't know if there's a law in the EU or uh, if that's just a sort of a standard. But that's that's where the name came from, at least. Yeah. Yeah, and it's potent stuff. <laughs> what about Geneva? Uh, so that is basically like the predecessor of gin, right? I mean, the, this Dutch drink that was first drunk to for people to get drunk off of. Yeah, that's made more out of a malt wine. I think fifteen to fifty percent malt wine, mm-hmm. um, and so it you know it can kind of it's sort of like the maltiness of a whiskey, but the botanicals of a gin. It were, I think I've always heard that Old Tom and Geneva are a lot alike. Oh, really? Yeah, they bear a resemblance. Oh, interesting. But um, so Geneva is like a pretty good place to start as far as this history of gin goes because it was, like I was saying, like a a proto-gin, like one of the first, I guess the direct predecessor of gin as we understand it today. But even further back than that, that essential component of gin, the juniper berry, Mm -hmm. has been used at least since the 70s. And not the 1970s, I mean just the straight-up 70s. Yeah. There was a recipe from Pliny the Elder from yeah. 76 or 77 yeah. CE um, that used juniper berries, and you just were supposed to boil some white wine with juniper berries and then drink it, and it was a curative um, and probably got you pretty drunk. And then I, I thought about this. This was like two years before he died in, in, at um, the eruption of Vesuvius. Oh, interesting. Isn't that weird, kind of chilling? Well, at least he had a nice couple of years there at the end. He definitely did. Uh, the the word Geneva, G-E-N-E-V-E-R, is actually Dutch for juniper, mm-hmm. uh, and it is it does come hail from Holland. Uh, and apparently, in the 13th and 14th centuries, these and this was when we, people were using herbs as medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they you know obviously still do that today. That's what Emily's doing. But um, apothecaries there were experimenting with all kinds of. Uh, curative herbs and medical tonics and stuff like that. And juniper was definitely in that category. Right. But where Geneva took a right turn was they said, wow, let's just get drunk. <laughs> and, like, it's not so much a, a cure-all, but, uh, I mean, maybe maybe it cures some things. But it was a it was a drink that you drank to get drunk. It was like, yeah, the first spirit out of, I believe, out of Europe for that people drank. I mean, they had beer and wine and everything before, but Geneva was like this— the, like the the first hard liquor, I think, that people really drank. And like you said, it was a malted wine, right? Yeah, that's the base. Which sounds like something you buy in a convenience store yeah. and drink out of a paper bag, like malted wine. But um, they would add like sugar to it and it had juniper, which is why a lot of people say this is the direct predecessor of gin. And it was how the UK was introduced to um, gin, was Geneva. Because I think in the... Um, 15th century, maybe, something like that? 16th. The 16th century, Queen Elizabeth I sent some of her royal soldiers to the Netherlands to fight alongside the Dutch when they were fighting for independence. And um, the Dutch said, hey, man, take a couple shots of this Geneva and you'll you'll fight anybody. You won't be scared at all. And um, the English liked that a lot. And so they brought Geneva back with them, or a taste for it at least. And Geneva eventually um, got shortened to gin. That's where we got the word gin from. That's right. And about uh, close to 100 years later, um, the end of the Anglo-Dutch War meant you could actually import it legally by the barrel. And uh, they were called strong water shops was what the early liquor stores in London were called. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are places in America where they have uh, ganked that title 
Oh, yeah, and they also wear arm garters. <laughs> Probably so. I'm so glad you taught me that word because I've always just called it, you know, those like arm old-timey garter? arm bands. <laughs> and it never had quite the punch. Yeah, arm garters. Um, the the first gin distillery in Britain, um, in Plymouth, right? Okay, I'm ha- I had a lot of trouble figuring this one out. I saw that in 1840, Booth's was the first uh, really? gin distiller. Okay. But, and that the Plymouth one was, oh, wait, maybe that was like the 1700s. I'm not sure. There there was a, a big rush to um, to establishing gin distilleries in this period that we're talking about. All right. Well, I don't, I don't have a date for the Plymouth one, actually. Let me look it up while you're talking. All right. Well, let's flash forward then to the gin craze because gin depending on who you're asking, was the the crack of the 1600s in England. Um, William of Orange, Protestant king of the Netherlands, uh, went to assume the throne in, of Great Britain mm-hmm. during the Glorious Revolution, and they were drinking that Geneva, uh, and they loved it as the royalty, but the, the working class could not afford this stuff, so they started making their own rot gut, like bathtub gin, Right, and apparently bathtub gin is uh, it is not brewed or not brewed. It's not distilled in a bathtub. It can be mixed with botanicals in a bathtub. <laughs> but from what I saw, the main reason it's called bathtub gin is because to water it down and top it off with water, you couldn't fit it in a, these bottles in a sink. So you had to do that in a bathtub. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think they were mixing up botanicals and stuff too. But um, at any rate, this rot gut gin in seventeen in the early seventeen hundreds. Uh, and by the mid 1700s, there was a full on gin problem in right. the UK. Yeah, it was called the gin craze, and uh, like especially if you read like kind of the um, the tracks railing against it at the time, and newspaper editorials and and stories about just the depravity that was going on because of gin. Mm-hmm. Like the whole country was just totally off its rocker on gin, and not even like. Good gin, or even Geneva, uh, this this bathtub rock gut stuff that you were talking about, where they would add things like turpentine to um, give it a piney flavor because they didn't have juniper berries. Mm-hmm. They would add sulfuric acid to give it a, a hot aftertaste like it was supposed to have. Just really, really bad stuff. And it was making people crazy. And there were, there were stories about mothers who, there was a woman named um, Judith DeFour who killed her own daughter so that she could sell her clothes to buy more gin, or parents, like, selling their kids into slavery to buy more gin, Um, you know, people turning into sex workers just to get gin money. Um, And just supposedly, it was like you said, it was just like like the crack epidemic and the same kind of response to it as well here in the United States, but this is gin back in the early 18th century. Yeah, and, and for sure there was a gin problem, um, now historians look back a little bit and they're like, you know what? These articles were written and these uh, op-eds were written by the upper class in Britain. And they had a, basically an obsession with the the English character being degraded and dragged through the mud by these gin drunks. <laughs> um, so take it with a grain of salt. There for sure was a gin problem, but they're basically like, was is, is a chicken or an egg thing going on? Because right. they're like, Urbanization is going rampant in London at the time, and was the gin craze a product of this poverty uh, or the cause of it? And by all accounts these days, it looks like it was sort of a product of it. I saw that there were at least 
two documented cases of spontaneous human combustion <laughs> really? from drinking this gin. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's <laughs> some hardcore gin. Jeez. Uh, there were eight different gin acts uh, yeah. from Parliament over about a uh, 22-year period. Uh, basically, I mean, they said different things, but one of the big ones was, hey, you can't put these, you can't put sulfuric acid in this stuff and sell it anymore. Right. And little by little, these incremental laws over these eight acts, like, made it really expensive to have a license to sell gin, really expensive to import neutral spirits, um, and just basically made it so that unless you owned a large distillery and an established, like, tavern, you could not legally... Um, engage in, in selling or producing gin. In ginnery? Yeah. I think that's what it said in the act. In uh, ginnery? Yes, thou shalt not partake in ginnery of any kind. Right, okay. So, uh, especially if your name is My Cocaine. <laughs> oh, you finally did it. <laughs> I don't, did I do it? If no. I did, it was accidental. No, you didn't. Okay, so, um, but over the course of these acts, it left just like these handful of huge distilleries like Booth's Plymouth, Plymouth, by the way, was the first. It was in the late 18th century. Oh, nice. Um, uh, and a couple others, I think Boodles might have been around by then. But um, all the small distilleries went away just by law. And so when this artisanal revolution that we're currently going in, uh, that's going on now, mm -hmm. swept over to England, um, this, this company called Sipsmiths went to go start their own. And they found out that they couldn't by law. That was 200 years old. So they had to lobby, and they were the first company in 200 years to get a license to uh, brew or distill small batch gin wow. in England. Amazing. Because of those gin acts. That's pretty great. I think so, too. All right. Well, let's take another little break here, and uh, we'll talk more about gin right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Hey, everybody. If you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. You start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A dot com. <laughs> 
All right, so gin is going strong in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Some might say it's a problem. Flash forward to the 1800s, okay. 1830, and the invention of the continuous still came about. That's pretty big. If you come over to my house, you see Emily down there. She doesn't have it. She has a traditional copper pot still, mm-hmm. which means that you you can do one thing at a time, basically. You boil your mash uh, and the alcohol, boil that off. You collect that distilled spirit in the end, mm-hmm. but then you got to start all over again. The continuous still was a very and the other bad part about that is is your ABV is going to be pretty low, right? If you're doing the the single pot, that's your alcohol by volume. That's right. Because the the longer it was say distilled, the pure and more alcoholic the ultimate spirit you captured would be, right? That's right. Okay. So if you have a continuous still, which was what uh, was invented in 1830. Uh, that means you can just keep going, man. You just keep throwing that mash in there, mm-hmm. and you keep that process going, and you get more and more pure as you go, and you're going to get that beautiful, clear grain alcohol around 96% in the end. And that really, really changed the game. Yeah, because so, it, like, these continuous stills or coffee stills after the man who invented them, it's like the the spirit rises through increasingly higher up stages and it's reheated and heated and heated, and so it becomes purer and purer the higher up it goes, and then eventually it gets tapped off, and then you have that high-test alcohol. And and because you could get pure alcohol um, to use as the base spirit for gin, you had less of a funky, foul, nasty taste yeah. that you needed to cover up with stuff like um, botanicals or sugar or turpentine, um, which meant that you could produce gin with a, a, a much purer gin that eventually evolved into London dry gin. Yeah, and London dry gin, again, with the dry, that means it's not as sugary. Apparently, uh, Victorians uh, in the upper class at one point decided to um, basically lower their sugar intake. Uh, I don't know if that was just a major health kick going it's, on. It sounds like John Harvey Kellogg's work here. Oh, maybe so. But that's when they started getting rid of the sugar, and that's why you get this drier version, which became the London Dry Gin. Yeah. And um, the rest is history. Uh, They started producing some really high-quality gins in England at the time. Yeah, they did. I think that's when the, like, Booths and Boodles and all those guys started. Beefeater. Beefeater. Um, and that was great. That was fine for a while. Like, like you said, the, the Navy was getting their rations and then going out to sea with their gin and testing it on gunpowder and all of that. But one of the things that you'll, you'll look at, especially with the London dry gin is while there's no sugar, there's like a really interesting combination of those botanicals and a botanical, we didn't really say, but I think it's kind of self-evident. It's any kind of like root plant, seed, leaf, stem, bark, whatever, mm-hmm. um, that's used to add a, a particular flavor profile to gin. Typically, juniper is like the chief botanical in a gin. But if you look at like these lists of botanicals that are frequently used in London dry gin, they come from all over the world. And it's no coincidence that uh, England was at the height of its imperial colonial power 
um, at a time when London dry gin developed because it was in a position to bring all these ingredients yeah. from all over the world to the distilleries that had set up shop in London. Yeah, I mean, I think even the um, Bombay Sapphire has each country listed behind the botanical, mm-hmm. and it's the, you know they're all from ten different places or or eleven different places. Yeah, pretty cool. It is pretty cool. So uh, the seafaring of the Brits, British Sea Power. Have you ever heard of that band? Yeah, they're good. I used to love those guys. They were uh, like early 2000s, right? Yeah, that was a big L.A. band for me. Oh, okay. I didn't know where they were from. No, no, no. That When I lived in L.A. Oh, I see. They're British. <laughs> I always think, so they were from like the era of like of Montreal and Someone Still Loves You, Boris Yeltsin and all those kind of indie bands at the same time, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Love those guys. British sea power. But the uh, that had a lot to do with gin because... Uh, the Brits and their navy were very strong, and they sailed a lot and traveled all over the world, obviously, uh, because they had certain interests, like conquering your country and making sure. it their own. And getting their hands on your botanicals. That's right. And also um, getting there into, like, let's say, the tropics and saying, like, wow, I've never been here before. What are, what are these things that we can eat and drink, and what is this disease, malaria? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get that. And so they looked at the the— you know, the people from there, obviously, to get their clue on, like, they're fine. Right. How can we be like them? And the natives of South America chewed on that uh, chinchona tree uh-huh. and that bark to combat malaria. And uh, chinchona is pretty wondrous. That bark has a natural chemical, and that is the quinine that you hear. You know, if you look at a tonic bottle, it contains quinine. Mm-hmm. And it calms your, you know, it makes you feel better if you have malaria, but it also disrupts the metabolism of the parasite and kills it. So it's a medicament as well as a, uh, a help you feel better type thing. Oh, la, la. What? <laughs> medicament. <laughs> I'm in a predicament because my heart's all a flutter oh, over that word. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> Something just happened to me. But these doctors were like, hey, yeah, you British soldier, you should, uh, they started prescribing this stuff, this chinchona bark. Uh, and colonists in India and South America, and they were eating a ton of it, 700 tons, actually, (laughs) in the 1840s. 700 tons of chinchona bark a year were being eaten by British soldiers and settlers. Yep. And so they figured out how to, I guess, distill quinine, um, probably using a coffee still, and uh, started putting it into tonic, like making this tonic water. Basically, I'm sure what, what you're buying is yeah. just distilled quinine from the chinchona bark. Um, it's got to be, right? I mean, that's I think tonic. I'm going to look at the other stuff in there, and uh, maybe I'll follow up with some ingredients. Okay, do. And bring me some too, please. Okay. Um, but so with quinine, like you were, you were basically taking a dose of quinine in a shot of tonic water. And so because everybody was sailing around the world on British ships with gin in one hand, and tonic water on the other hand, Boom. they eventually put the two together and came up with the gin and tonic. Throw a lemon or a lime slice in there to combat scurvy, and you have a complete drink. That's amazing. It is. Uh, and apparently a lot of these gin cocktails were born out of the, the nasty taste of the original uh, alcohol. Mm-hmm. So, they, you know, we were talking about that rot gut gin. What do you do? You're going to mix it with a lot of stuff to try and make it more drinkable. Right. Um, that is not the martini, however. This is a pretty neat story. Uh, in the 1870s and 80s is when martinis were born. And uh, this is from a gentleman named Richard Barnett. And this makes so much sense. It's very cool. He said, the martini is an embodiment of American history, 
at its most diverse, mm-hmm. Dutch and English gin mixed with French vermouth, served with Mediterranean olives, German Jewish pickled onions, or Caribbean lemons. Yeah. And that glass, which, by the way, one of my more uh, annoyances in life, uh, biggest annoyances, is when you get a martini these days mm-hmm. in some weird glass. Yeah. Just get a martini glass. But do you like the big honking 90s Karen from Will and Grace style martini glasses? I, I do. Or like the classic <laughs> 60s, you know, Mad Men martini glass? Uh, well, okay. More compact version. I, I like them both. I'll, I'll take a, I'll take either one. But just give me that conical glass. Mm-hmm. Don't give me like a tulip glass. I've not seen a martini in a tulip glass. I have. There are places around town that serve them in these little tulip glasses. and. Huh. Like, just do it right. Yeah, do it right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's literally called a martini glass. It's the glass meant for it. Yeah, it's just like serving a margarita in a, well, you can serve a margarita in a lot of different things, I guess. Sure, you can just cup your hands and drink a margarita <laughs> out of there. And people have, including me. That's true. Um, you, can, the- <laughs> you can get the margarita ingredients poured down your throat. You don't even need to use your hands. That's true. At Senior Frogs. Um the 1920s uh, is when the gin craze kind of was re-kickstarted again mm-hmm. uh, because of prohibition. And they even went back to putting, like, disgusting ingredients in there. Yeah, you mean, were, like, not the gin craze, like, oh, everybody likes gin. Like, the gin craze, like, everybody's going bonkers because of the terrible gin they're drinking, right? Well, and everyone's drinking gin because it was— uh, it wasn't just straight-up ethyl alcohol from a moonshiner. Like, hey, right. at least let's throw some— uh, "Quote unquote" ingredients in here. Oh yeah, turpentine again. Yeah, they use the same stuff that they used in the original gin craze: sulfuric acid and turpentine. I know, isn't that gross? It's a classic recipe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> gross, dude. Uh, what else was made? The the Manhattan, the gin fizz, the gimlet. Yep, these are all born out of that uh, sort of nineteen. 19- 30s post-prohibition cocktail movement. Yeah, we talked a lot about the origin of some of those drinks in that How Bars Work Live episode, if I remember correctly. Those are very first shows. But it's funny to think, like, some of our favorite cocktails were built to combat the tastes of nasty gin. Yeah. Which is why people are like, oh, yeah, don't don't use the good stuff to mix. Like, the whole reason for mixing is to, to cover up the nasty stuff. Yeah. Just drink the good stuff straight. Although I Disagree. cannot imagine just drinking like like a neat room temperature gin. That does not sound good to me. Well, let me tell you the story of my first gin experience <laughs> okay. uh, in Athens in college. Um, and, and Dave Roos put this article together for us, mm-hmm. and he very astutely points out that if you're a child of the 70s and 80s, you probably didn't drink like a gin and tonic early on. Like this is something you may have picked up on later. Mm-hmm. And that was the case for me. It was late college. And there was a, a fellow waiter at Mexicali Grill that was there for just a brief period named Don. Can't remember the guy's <laughs> last name. It doesn't matter. And Don and I ended up out on the uh, river late night mm-hmm. uh, at Oconee Springs Park with a half gallon of Seagram's gin. Oh, my God. Just took it too far, and we're drinking it right out of the bottle and wading out into the river and not being very safe, quite frankly. It doesn't sound like it. But uh, I'll always remember Don for that. He introduced me to gin, and he <laughs> introduced me uh, unsuccessfully to the Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> it didn't I, stick, huh? I don't know why those always stick out to me, but Don was the first guy who's like, man, this band is playing across the street. And <laughs> they're like, it's crazy. It's kind of jazzy, and they're multiracial. 
And it's like, you never heard anything like it. And that was Dave Matthews' band. Yeah, he was right about that. He was, he, he was factually correct about two things. He's <laughs> <Right. laughs> jazzy and multiracial. Man, Seagram's right out of the handle. Huh? Oh, boy, it was bad. But I remember very distinctly, like, tasting that piney gin yeah. and thinking, like, ooh, this isn't a good thing to drink like this. No, it took me many years to finally come around to gin and be like, oh, okay. I liked vodka martinis for, that was one of my first drinks ever was vodka martinis. And um, When you were 13? Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, in my treehouse, I was smoking cigarettes and drinking vodka <laughs> martinis <laughs> the summer before ninth grade. But, um, like, I so I would drink vodka martinis. It wasn't like I just couldn't take the taste of, like, straight-up alcohol. But for some reason, I did not like gin. And then I finally gave it a chance. I was like, actually, this is way better than vodka. I've never been a vodka guy. Unless you're talking about that delightful birthday cake-flavored vodka. Oh. Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hey, uh, we don't judge, man, if that's what you like. Oh, sure. What you like. Of course. Um, Jen is making a big comeback now, though, like we said. Uh, it may have started in the late 90s when Bombay Sapphire first came to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, apparently it was a pretty big hit. Then Hendrix came along in the U.S. in 2003. Yeah. Uh, love that Hendrix. We're saying as many brands as possible. So, In the hopes that they'll send us hint, free stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we get a lot of whiskey. We never get gin. Yeah, no, no. Oh, every once in a while we've gotten gin, but um, not ever. No, not really. But the the Genesis is on still. Nice. Did you just coin that? I did. That was really good. Thanks. Genesis and medicant. <laughs> Medicament. Medi- oh, even better. That's a real word, though. I didn't make that up. Uh, I know, but you just oh, okay. pull it out of sure. the ether. It's great. Fantastic. Oh, you got you anything still, else? No, I thought you were still going, and I interrupted you, and you're going to pick up again. You'd think after, like, 12 years of doing this, we would have had that figured out by now. Oh, I got nothing else. I don't have anything else either, except that gin is great. Mm-hmm. It is great stuff. If you're of uh, legal of age, yeah, drink responsibly. True. Yep. Don't drive, certainly. Nope. Make, make it really easy on you to not drive these days. Yeah, man. Take advantage of it. Ride-hailing apps, you have zero excuse these days. That's right. Well, if you want to know more about gin, um, well, again, I guess if you're 21, give it a try. See what happens. But like Chuck said, drink responsibly. If you're not 21, you're going to have to wait. Sorry. Uh, And since I said you're going to have to wait, sorry, it's time for listener mail. All right. So listener mail. This one is, uh, let me see here. Oh, this is a a hand-typed letter. Look at this thing. Nice. Not an email. No. It's a printed email. It's also not written in the cutout magazine letters either. It's just no, nice typewritten. So uh, this is from uh, Westwood Sutherland, and he's the guy who sent us that beef jerky. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Westwood. Uh, hey, guys. My name is Westwood Sutherland, currently a college sophomore in environmental engineering at University of Colorado Boulder. Mm-hmm. Sco Buffs, he says. Sure. Uh, I'd like to say I'm your biggest fan, but I can't compete with my dad who introduced me to your podcast. He's been listening for years and even acts on some of your information. After hearing your podcast uh, about bees, uh, the first one, not not the beekeeping, uh, he became a a beekeeper and has reaped the rewards for years now and increased production from our fruit trees as well as getting some honey. That's awesome. Uh, Though he has to deal with the bear. Uh, he, He sent in that picture of the bear. That the, that's the local cop that hassles him all the time? <laughs> no, it's a bear going after his honey, and he named the bear Jerry. 
<laughs> How great awesome. is that? That's great. Give uh, me some miso. He also invested money into a stock. I'm sorry, into any stock that worked with CRISPR. Oh, smart guy. Uh, and after hearing your gene editing podcast, and he is very happy with the results. Wink, That's wink. That's cool. That's nice. I didn't. I should have. Yeah. We didn't even take our own advice. <laughs> What's my problem? Uh, anyway, the reason I got into your podcast, I started a beef jerky company when I was 14. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was selling enough that I spent uh, lots of hours cutting, marinating, laying meat, and bagging jerky. Uh, during those long hours, my dad would help me listen to stuff you should know one after the other and made time go by very quickly. Just wanted to say thank you for your wisdom, comedy, insight, and making my days of jerky production a bit easier. I've included some samples of my jerky as a thank you. That is so cool. Uh, and that is Westwood Sutherland, and you can find his beef jerky at westsidejerky.com. I believe Westwood comes from a pretty amazing family. And you know what? Let me correct that, too. He does come from an amazing family. It is West's side, as in Westwood. So W-E-S-T-S-S-I-D-E, jerky.com. The extra S stands for super. Small batch, flank steak, beef jerky. Yeah. Gl- gluten-free and 100% not vegan. <laughs> That's right. That's what he says on his yeah. card. Thanks, Westwood. That was pretty cool. And hats off to your dad, too, for being so cool as well. That's right. We need to do administrative details soon because I came across the list. We've got stuff that was given to us a year ago at, like, shows in October. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we need to do it soon, okay? Totally. Okay. Well, if you want to get in touch with us like Westwood did, you can go on to our social links, start at stuffyoushouldknow.com, and you can also send us an email, or you can send us a typewritten letter, but try an email, too. You can send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com adoption drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions.